Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I am your host, David Rothkopf. I am here in New York City. Uh, We are joined today by... Uh, Juliet Kayyem, who is in, where are you, Juliet? I'm in Cambridge. In Cambridge, Massachusetts. She works there with the John F. Kennedy School of Government. Uh, she uh, is also commentator uh, in multiple media and works in the private sector. And we're glad to have you back. We've got with uh, Juliet, Jeremy Kanandike. Jeremy, where are you? I'm uh, just outside D.C. So you're down in the D.C. area. Jeremy is a senior policy fellow at the Center for Global Development. He served in the Obama administration, um, as did Juliet, um, as did Rosa Brooks, uh, who is also in the D.C. area someplace. Uh, How are you doing, Rosa? Hi, David. Uh, Rosa, as everybody knows, is at the Georgetown uh, Law Center. And we also have with us, of course, Ed Luce in the Washington, D.C. area. How are you doing, Ed? Very good. Thank you, David. Of the Financial Times. Um, and we had wanted to, you know, focus when we thought about doing this uh, episode on the state of the virus. But that has been complicated somewhat. Um, by the fact that there have been demonstrations across the country, um, uh, in fact, in all 50 states. Uh, and so we are now simultaneously contending with the worst public health crisis in 100 years in the United States, the worst uh, uh, unemployment crisis in American history, one of the worst economic crises in American uh, history, the worst uh, 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 public uh, unrest crisis in, in, in over 50 years in the United States. Um, and I guess I want to go around to the group and get some takes on the, the you know, different aspects of this. But let me start with you, Juliet. As somebody who is experienced in dealing with these kind of things, how surprised or unsurprised are you by seeing multiple crises Simultaneously. Well, that's not surprising. And we're a big nation uh, that should be able to chew gum and rub our belly at the same time. The difference is just the magnitude of both different crises. So people forget that during the BP oil spill, we had the attempted attack in Times Square, but the both, you know, one is big, one was an attempted attack. So, but, but, you know, the system does hopefully know how to deal with both, but these are both big and they're historic and they do relate to each other. I mean, I think it's just no surprise. Um, you know, the, the, you know, there's an immediate response to uh, a tragic killing, unjustified killing of an African-American by police again. Uh, but it does become larger than this, which I think is a sense of lack of leadership, uh, uh, unemployment, uh, a, a pandemic uh, that's, um, that is disproportionately impacting minority communities, um, and a sense of unresponsiveness by government that is, I think, felt by many. So, but it does breed a challenge, which is, of course, you have public safety entities in the homeland trying to manage two uh, different challenges. And once again, governors are at the forefront um, and how fast they respond and how, whether they deploy the National Guard and all this craziness coming out of the White House, they have to respond to. I will say two quick things on this. I mean, my first is just simply, it is possible to think that Trump is the worst president imaginable, let alone the worst president imaginable for a pandemic and a series of uh, of um, uh, uh, 
protest against police brutality. Uh, but um, it's also possible simultaneously to believe that uh, some of these jurisdictions did seem a little bit flat-footed in, in response. Um, there are ways to approach a known uh, rally, one that may even be emotional. And it, they, some of them just went from zero to DEFCON, you know, one in like five seconds. And, um, and I think you saw some jurisdictions know how to handle it, you know, some people may not like this, but you know, curfews actually do work because you separate those who would abide by a curfew from those who don't. You, you, I don't mind the deployment of the National Guard under a governor's authority if you do think that local authorities will be overwhelmed. And it just seemed like all of it was uh, flat-footed. So, so you don't, you don't, you can, you can think that um, some of the early reactions, especially Wednesday and Thursday, um, uh, were, I thought, totally predictable given the situation and also not dealt with correctly. I think the second thing, just quickly, is, of course, if you ask me, you know, what, 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 you know, what am I scared about most as someone who plans for a pandemic? I'm not a doctor. You know, it is a, it is a, a large event with contact intensity in which various individuals seem to not be, uh, uh, you know, not, not, not to embrace uh, personal mitigation strategies like masking and social distancing. So I, you know, I looked at, you know, I, I can emotionally support the protests and look at it and just gasp that they are occurring during a pandemic. Yeah. So Jeremy, let me pick up a bit on that. You know, one dimension of the pandemic is that, uh, uh, it has disproportionately affected um, communities of color, poor communities in the United States. Uh, it's not that police violence uh, against those communities is a new thing. It's, it's, it's been around for a long time. Uh, but it looks like, uh, you know, we have a problem that we often have, which is if something's going wrong in our country, it's going wrong worst in these places. Um, and that's a sign of, uh, in, in my eyes at least, the kind of systemic racism that the White House took great pains to reject over the weekend. What's your view? Yeah, you know, I think there's an unavoidable connection here in terms of the, you know, the, the, the White House. Um, I mean, you know, it's wider than just this administration, but I think it's more acute in this administration um, and not taking seriously enough threats that are disproportionately affecting um, marginalized communities and communities of color. And, you know, I think if the, if the sorts of, uh, if the sorts of communities being hardest hit by this pandemic, you know, you look at New York city where it's been very well documented now that it is, it is the poorest and most politically marginal communities, predominantly communities of color who are being hardest hit by this pandemic, who have the worst survivability, who have the, you know, the worst transmission uh, dynamics. If that were happening on the island of Manhattan, rather than in the peripheries in the Bronx and Brooklyn and Queens, I think you'd see a dramatically different level of attention from the White House. Um, you know, if, if in Georgia this were hitting, uh, as it's now starting to, um, some of the more rural, uh, the, the whiter and more rural communities rather than, you know, where it initially hit in some of the poorer communities of color. Um, I think the White House would have been taking it more seriously, as, as would some of the Southern governors. Um, so it, it's, you know, I, I, I can't help but see a connection there between the, um, you know, the, the way that our country and much of our political system has historically disregarded police violence against communities of color and the way that much of our political system has downplayed the seriousness of this pandemic, which is disproportionately affecting those, um, you know, those same communities and the same population. Mm -hmm. So there is a, uh, you know, there is a, a common thread of inattention. There is a common thread of inept management and a common thread of lack of accountability for, for, for both. Um, and, you know, it's hard to say how these protests might be playing out differently if we were not in the midst of a pandemic. Um, you know, would, why, you know, why did this particular killing spark this mass reaction when, um, you know, others, others didn't spark this kind of a national uh, countrywide or even worldwide based on some of the marches yesterday around the world uh, reaction. But, you know, it, it's perhaps not coincidental that that's happening among, at, when it's layered on top of this other crisis. So I, I want to, in a moment, come to a very good column that Ed wrote about where 
this all may be going over the summer ahead. But before we get to that, Ed, just to sort of feed into the perspective, I'd like to turn for a moment to Rosa, because Rosa, in addition to everything else she does, um, is a part-time police officer, uh, spends a lot of time thinking about the role of police in society, um, uh, and clearly for the community of police officers in the United States, uh, this is yet another moment of crisis. Um, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on it. And then, if I might add to that, we have today the President of the United States uh, taunting governors, telling them that they're going to look like jerks if they don't crack down, um, suggesting that they need to dominate. Uh, and he uh, has endorsed the view of, of the likes of Senator Tom Cotton that what we really need is the 101st Airborne Division and the military um, showing no quarter, uh, which, by the way, is a war crime, um, in how it deals with these protesters. So I think, you know, it, to me, it looks like he's pouring gasoline on the flames. You're a professional. How does it look to you, Rosa? Yep, he's sure pouring gasoline on the flames. I, I, I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot in what you've just asked, David. So let me start by going back to the the original question about: Is it surprising that we have this pandemic and this uh, this protest movement emerging at the same time? I don't think it's at all surprising. I think I think that you not only not only do you have the distress, anger, uh, pain, suffering that comes from black and brown communities uh, being hardest hit by the pandemic itself, which is obviously not just a coincidence, but, but is, is a result in, in many profound ways of uh, structural racism and the legacy of discrimination in this country. So you, you've got that as a kind of undercurrent. Then on top of that, you, you have the most significant economic crisis uh, in century occurring as a result of the pandemic, et cetera. Uh, which has put, you know, 40 million Americans filing for unemployment, um, just been absolutely devastating and most devastating to people who are already economically vulnerable. And we know that that group is also made up disproportionately of black and brown skinned people in this country, not, not wholly, of course, but disproportionately. So, so you, have, you have the disease itself, you have economic misery and insecurity, and then you have multiple events in terms of police use of force um, and also private violence against African Americans that has not been matched by a, a quick and decisive police response. And here I'm talking about the, the killing of Ahmed Aubrey just uh, you know a couple weeks early, well, a few months ago, but the videos came out just a few weeks ago. Um, and it took much, much, much too long for the white killers to be arrested or brought to justice. So, so when then you get the George Floyd, et cetera, on top of all those other things, you know, I think it is the proverbial straw breaking, breaking the camel's back here. Um, I also think it, it was almost inevitable. I mean, those, those of us, <laughs> those of us who are apocalyptically oriented um, are always assuming that it's only a matter of time before something kind of snaps um, and we, we, we saw things almost snap with the protests in Michigan against the stay-at-home orders. And there, too, President Trump was pouring, pouring fuel on that fire as well. Uh, I think it, it, it was just, in a way, lucky accident that that didn't erupt in even more violence right then. Um, but something was going to break. Something was going to break for someone. And, and I think that the, the confluence, the convergence of events that I just mentioned um, really just did it for, for many uh, in the African-American community, as well as many allies who are outraged at what has been happening. So, so no surprise at all. My biggest fear right now, um, because I think that there's still a lot of dry tinder on the far right as well, is that this will be used, used and misused to then justify various forms of retaliatory violence, both by state agents and by private actors on the right. Um, and we, as, as you quoted Tom Cotton, 
you know, calling for the uh, 101st Airborne, uh, uh, et cetera, saying that that looters and so on should be given, quote, no quarter. This is after Donald Trump just a few days ago uh, suggested that, you know, vicious dogs and uh, ominous weapons should be used against protesters. Um, we're, we're, we're in a world where the very leaders who should know better, the very leaders who, who obviously should be trying to calm the situation and address the underlying grievances that are giving rise to this, uh, these protests, um, you know, are doing the precise opposite. They're, they're just inflaming things and, you know, they will be heated. We've already seen, you know, I'd be curious to know Juliet's take on this. We've already seen all kinds of conflicting reports uh, of outside influence on all sides, ranging from, you know, Antifa being in the mix and President Trump wants to designate them a foreign terrorist organization, which doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense, but whatever. Um, we have allegations uh, coming from the liberal side of the spectrum um, of Russian involvement in trying to egg people on or sow misinformation on, on all sides, which would not shock me if that were true, but I don't, I don't feel like I'm in a position to evaluate it. Um, and we certainly, you know, we certainly know that there are also allegations that white nationalist groups are now getting involved and, and indeed allegations that some of the looting, fires, et cetera, have been caused by right-wing groups hoping to throw the blame on left-wing groups. Um, so things are very, very bad. They're very, very volatile. They could get a whole lot worse. So, right, we don't know. You know, this could gradually die down, or it could get a whole lot worse. The notion of uh, President Trump in, in his in his remarks to governors uh, today, saying that governors need to dominate and that you need to quote use the military. It's the most wonderful military. Um, sending in not not. I mean, obviously, National Guard troops under the control of state governors already ups the ante and, and risks inflaming things further. But the notion of uh, using active duty military is just, it's a terrifically awful idea uh, on multiple levels. You know, obviously all Trump needs to do is persuade a few governors to make the request and he'd have the authority to do that under the Insurrection Act. But, but active duty military are not, are not primarily trained to do crowd control, etc. You know, they are not primarily trained to respect First Amendment rights and deal with complex issues where you have mostly unarmed protesters and a smaller number of people who are using violence. The possibility for things to go terribly, terribly wrong very, very quickly would dramatically increase if active duty military are deployed into any of these already incredibly tense situations. So no matter how you look at it, you know, we are, we are, in, a, we are in a really scary moment where the distress and anger that we're, we're, we're seeing is real and understandable, but, but where there's also a, a terrible risk that it will be used as an excuse to, to escalate and crack down by both by the government and by private right-wing actors. I should say, by the way, that while you were saying this, while we were recording this, the White House is having a press conference. One of oh, the great. things that they've said at the press conference is that they are approaching this in the context of the Joint Terrorism Task Force. Um, we, we should note that the president said that he would designate Antifa as a terrorist organization. Um, two problems with that. One is it's not really an organization. And two, he doesn't actually have the authority to do that um, under uh, any current statute. But of course, the government can do what the government does, you know, and if he says the Joint Terrorism Task Force needs to address this um, uh, in this administration, they will continue to do that. Uh, and of course, there, you know, part of that is political. And you talked about in your very good column, the context of this politically and your concerns um, about this turning into uh, more than just a week or a weekend of incidents and extending out over the course of a long, hot summer. Uh, yeah, I see, by the way, also, while we were talking, the transcript of the president's call with governors, the call uh, where he was berating governors for um, being weak on the protesters, um, that he said um, that the military is a wonderful thing. You've got to use, we've got to use the military. We've got to dominate the situation with the military. That is, um, that is uh, the kind of advice I don't think Rosa would, would be giving. 
um, for proper, well-trained crowd control. Um, yeah, the the long, hot summer ahead doesn't necessarily, you know, um, need to be a, a replay of 1968 or other earlier years in the 1960s or 92. Um, uh, like like everyone else, I don't know what's going to happen. Whether these are going to peter out or whether more trick is whether there'll be some overreaction somewhere by the the police or the National Guard or the military that will spark a a fresh wave of it. Um, uh, But we do know that there is a very, at the same time as this is going on, there's a really quite quite rapid and very troubling um, relaxation of the lockdown across now, I think, most of the United States. Um, And we're, we're kind of beckoning on a second wave. Um, uh, and so the, the long hot summer um, is going to be an, a, 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 a pandemic, long hot summer. And the pandemic, I think, has intersected with this grotesque um, killing of George Floyd and the reaction to it um, in highlighting just how desperate and suffocated, with, I guess, an intentional pun, uh, minorities feel in this situation and just how overlooked um, they are in terms of the work that they provided as essential workers and are continuing to provide in terms of their much higher mortality rates, which are about three times the white mortality rate. Um, And in terms of the fact that they are far less likely to have health insurance and far more likely to have been made unemployed. I mean, you just pile one um, sort of dimension of this onto the other and you you get a pressure cooker. Um, which all of us can understand. I'm from a very different demographic, but I can vicariously feel complete sympathy with all the frustrations um, that that minorities in America feel, and of course, non-minorities too. Um, So I think um, we've got a president who is deservedly um, seeing a growing lead um, uh, uh, by his opponent, Joe Biden, the latest being a 10 percentage point lead, pretty, pretty big lead, stronger than anything Hillary had in 2016. Um, and that lead's not a flash in the pan. It's been growing for weeks and for obvious observable reasons, which is the president's mismanagement of a pandemic that targets the old disproportionately. And he is losing the support of retirees. Um, uh, we have him now in the context of these um, street protests and the looting, thinking he's got the issue, thinking he's got the law and order message that Nixon used in 1968 to get elected, um, and thinking that uh, white anxiety and playing on those fears is the way he can get re-elected. Now, I think history doesn't replay itself, and I think that parallel is overstretched, and I think Nixon wasn't the sitting president um, you know, when, when um, all the troubles of the summer of 1968 happened. But I do think, and I think we'll probably all agree, that Trump will exploit this to the hilt. He will racialize the, um, the debate, and he will try to make whites fear blacks more than they want change. Um, I, th- I think Biden will still win. But I dread the next 155 days. I dread what Trump is prepared to do. We talked about the military being sent in, but there are all kinds of things um, that he will try on and that he could try on. Um, And if he could, he probably will. Um, And in the context we've just been talking about, this pressure cooker situation, goodness knows where that might end. It's radically unpredictable and, and, and really very disturbing. To me, uh, Juliet, one of the things that is so striking is that the image that triggered the violence was of a black man pinned beneath four police officers saying that he couldn't breathe. Um, At a moment in our history where thousands of black people and people of color were gasping that they could not breathe under the knee of an economic and healthcare system that was not taking care of them. And that many, many more 
black people and people of color will suffer and die as a consequence of the pandemic than even those who have done so at the hands of the police. Um, And, you know, that's to me at the core of this. You know, that to me is back to this issue of institutional racism. And, you know, to Ed's point, there is no aspect of this that, should it get worse, will not affect this group the most. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, Ed brings up a good point. You know, there are all these people predicting that the law and order president, uh, that people will want the law and order president. Um, and, you know, we don't know, but, you know, just to remind people, you know, he was not up for re-election, but, you know, when President Bush left office, uh, his uh, support and polling and probably what led to President Obama was not based on the Iraq war. The, the, that, his polling was sort of consistently okay, even when things were going so horribly bad. It was Hurricane Katrina. It was the sense that you could not, you had a federal government that just simply could not manage it's homeland, right? You know, and so it's, it's, you know, you, you look at his polling, it's, it's quite remarkable. It was, but, but the Katrina reaction by the public was obviously flavored and influenced by uh, the war in Iraq. And you may have something similar to this, that it's just a, it's a consistent narrative, as Rosa was saying, that this, these are the same story. Uh, they can't, you know, we can't breathe, right? All of us, but obviously in particular, minority and African-American communities cannot breathe. And so, uh, so I'm sort of skeptical of the law and order Nixon narrative as well. Um, and I think how this unfolds is, um, so, I mean, I think, you know, I could be wrong and it's really hard to predict this stuff. Uh, I think that these things tend to take a natural cycle. You see community members out, out there, you see the exposure of the sort of, you know, white skateboard dudes who are the only ones I saw on TV, both local and national news, doing any of the violence or vandalism. I think um, one of the police chiefs said today is he called them the white skateboard dudes, like, you know, talking to the African-American community. So I think that this will, um, uh, uh, whether it peaked this weekend, I don't know. But I, I, think, I think in a year, I mean, excuse me, I think in a month, when we hit 150, 160, 170,000 dead um, with um, social distancing easing up too fast and somewhat negligently in some areas, uh, that that will continue to be the story. And that story obviously also does include its disproportionate impact on the very communities um, that, um, that are impacted by police violence. But it also will include the lack of support uh, that Trump is experiencing with the um, uh, with um, senior citizen voters. He's lost them um, um, as as I think as well as uh, many others who are just seeing a, a dysfunction, a sort of inability for this president to respond to anything meaningful in any serious manner. Um, so that's, I mean, I'm, it's predictive, but that's how I think, you know, urban riots do not last months on end. Um, there will be a strong police presence. Um, but I think also the community is well aware that the violence was occurring by, whether you want to call them outside forces or very, very small elements, uh, that that will be rooted out as well. No, uh, Jeremy, I attempted to make a joke earlier today on Twitter as, as one sometimes does. <laughs> Never as, make I, a joke on Twitter. Yeah, no, it's true. But but what I said was, and this was apropos of what I had said to Rosa, um, if there were Trump brand fire extinguishers, they would be filled with gasoline. And that, you know, what he often does is he takes a bad situation and he makes it worse. And in the case of this um, uh, pandemic, he wanted it to go away so bad. He wants to change the subject so bad that he will fan the flames of social unrest in a way that's quite likely to fan the flames of the pandemic. And I, I'm just you know, wondering if you might talk a little bit about how your expectations for the course of the pandemic are changing in the context of the day-to-day reality we face here now. Yeah. Well, I think there's, there's kind of two big, there's two big factors here. One, one is the protest 
I'm honestly not sure how enormous an impact the protests are going to have on transmission. Um, you know, it's been, it's been really interesting. So it's interesting to juxtapose the images we're seeing in the protests with the images we saw last weekend of people celebrating uh, and kind of partying on Memorial Day weekend. So think of that Lake of the Ozarks photograph of everybody at the pool party. We know now there was an infected person at the pool party in the Ozarks. No one in that photograph was wearing a mask. There was a, fa- there was a photo here in Maryland of Ocean City, Maryland, and the boardwalk in Ocean City, packed with people, almost nobody wearing masks. You look at the pictures of the protests, almost everyone is wearing masks. Um, there are a few who aren't, but I'd say, you know, the ones that I've seen, it's probably three quarters or so of the people who are wearing masks, sometimes more. So, you know, if you've got these people outside, they're moving rapidly with, you know, around each other, they're probably not exposed to any one individual within that crowd for very long. You know, I'm sure there will be some transmission. Um, I am not convinced that these are going to be super spreading events, as long as people stay masked. Um, I think the protests, uh, you know, there's been a lot of commentary on Twitter, a lot of people saying, oh, liberals don't care about, you know, social distancing once it's a riot. Um, You know, that's, that's ridiculous. Um, I think, you know, liberals do tend to see institutional police violence against communities of color as a public health issue. And, and, you know, so you've got kind of two public health issues going at once here, but um, I'm not sure how much the, the, I'm not sure how much the the protests are going to drive new transmission, probably some, but I don't know if it would be, uh, you know, I don't know if it will be catastrophically large, but the other, the other factor and the factor I'm in, in a lot of ways more worried about is, is the, you know, what Juliet was saying about the, the reopening that's been going too quickly in a lot of parts of the country. And, and not just too quickly, but too quickly without anything to replace the, the social distancing orders. So if you're lifting social distancing, but you don't have enough testing and tracing capacity underway to suppress transmission that way, then you're just basically, you know, kind of you're, you've got a city, we've been a city under siege, we've just thrown the gates open, and we've got no way to fight off the invaders. Um, we're just tired of keeping the gates closed. And so the invaders are going to come in and they're going to, you know, they're going to, they're going to pillage the city basically um, uh, virus wise. So we're starting to see this in Wisconsin. Wisconsin has been now on a pretty sustained uptick um, for the last several weeks since the, since the Supreme court in that state uh, forced an annulment of the stay at home order. Um, some of the Southern states are now seeing upticks in hospitalization and, you know, importantly, we're starting to see a lot more transmission in rural areas. So if you go to the New York Times website and you look at what are the hotspot counties, they're almost all rural. They're not, it's not New York, it's not D.C., it's not Prince George's, you know, it is rural counties that per capita are having some of the worst outbreaks at the moment. And so, um, you know, I think we are, we'll see some sort of seasonal downturn over the summer, but we're not going to see transmission go away. And I, I think in a lot of parts of the country, it's going to continue building more slowly than it did in March, but it will continue building. And that's going to set us up for a very difficult fall. Um, it gets more dystopian all the time. Rosa, I, I see here that uh, one of uh, your, your heroes from the public sector uh, tweeted something out an hour ago, um, a Congressman Matt Getz of uh florida um, who doesn't love matt Getz? <laughs> who doesn't who doesn't i mean louis gomert loves him because they're in competition for being the dumbest guy in congress <laughs> um but there are really so many people competing for that but you know as i think about dystopia you know this guy distills everything to a lowest common denominator that translates quickly across uh republican landscape and and so what he tweeted was a question, so maybe you could answer his question. Now that we clearly see Antifa as terrorists, can we hunt them down like we do those in the Middle East? Um, You want me to answer that question? Yes. Um, That would be a really horrifically awful idea. Um, I mean, I mean, needless to say, when it comes to actual terrorists in actual foreign countries, um, uh, I, I and many others have raised real concerns about the lack of transparency and accountability in the process that the U.S. government used uh, for drone strikes and special operations raids, um, uh, particularly but not exclusively um, when those who were targeted were U.S. citizens. Um, you know, it's, it's extremely problematic at the end of the Obama administration. 
uh, uh, the rules were tightened up and some additional transparency was introduced, but I don't think that went nearly far enough. Um, I think that the, the, it, it would have been entirely possible and extremely advisable even then to have far more transparency in what we were doing and more elements of either a judicial or a sort of a quasi-judicial review process. The notion that one would want to take that already extremely problematic uh, process and apply it to killing people on U.S. soil, many of whom, if not all of whom, are U.S. citizens, um, you know, would run utterly counter to every legal principle and every ethical norm that we have. Well, there's that. There's um, that. Th there's, Just there's, a start. Yeah, it's, it's a start. Um, Ed, the, if we just pick up there, there, one of the other problems with it is that you know, Antifa is not actually an organization. It's it's a kind of a loose movement. Um, uh, being anti-fascist doesn't strike me as a as a bad thing to be to to begin with. But you know, there were some uh, folks that wanted to stand up to neo Nazis and white supremacists in places like Charlottesville, who identified themselves that way. But by identifying these protests as being driven by the far left as bill barr has done by identifying the bad actors as terrorists who belong to a very nondescript movement like antifa it sure looks a lot like donald trump and bill barr are mobilizing the um military and justice uh, mechanisms of the United States government to go after their opponents, or at least to create the opportunity to do so. Um, a, a second interpretation of this might be that they have long based their political movement on racist ideology, and this plays to their base, and that division and seeing communities of color as a threat is in their interest. Neither of these things are good. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on both, Ed. Um, it's a very good question. Uh, you know, there is the sort of burning of the Reichstag scenario at the back of all of our minds. Um, and the, the stuff that may or may not uh, sort of gather momentum and become significant on... Uh, on Twitter, Russian bot-fueled memes about George Soros being the funder of uh, Antifa and, you know, bussing in extremist radicals from out of state to all these cities to foment riots. And um, th th there is no solid evidence for any of, any of this. I mean, of course, the George Soros thing is a complete uh, in invention. But there's, there's no real evidence that these protests are driven by outsiders. Um, I think that um, depending on the policing, um, protests can remain, can remain peaceful and constructive or they can get out of hand. And Minneapolis, I think, has been, at least in the early days, was a particularly managed, badly managed one, as has New York at times. Um, others like Atlanta have been pretty well managed and they've kept quiet. There have been scenes in some uh, smaller municipalities of um, police officers joining the marches. Um, and those demonstrations, surprise, surprise, are entirely peaceful and involve no looting. Um, so, you know, it's a case-by-case -case thing that if we wish to be sort of attentive and, and see who's managing the policing situation well and the public communication well and who isn't, would reveal a pattern there that shows that professional, responsible, trained policing results in no violence. Um, and that where police, you know, get out of hand and start targeting people and being and, and making unprovoked attacks on marchers and journalists, by the way, um, then um, then it tends to be free for all, and you know the looting then begins. Um, that's that's what you know a nuanced look at this very variegated picture will tell you, but. You know, we, we, we do this kind of thing full time, or most of us do. We, 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 we have the time to do that. For most voters, they've got their lives to go on with. 
Um, and they're going to they're going to follow one meta narrative or another. And the meta narrative that Trump and Barr and various echo chambers are constructing um, is uh, is not to be completely discounted. That it it, it it is going to be it already is clearly the view of many Americans. Um, and Bill Barr, in spite of being a nominally sort of independent and detached, most senior legal officer in the country, is once again being what's his name from Godfather, the mob lawyer, the family lawyer. It's quite extraordinary. Um, I, 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 I'm still shocked by how cynical mm-hmm. and overtly political Bill Barr is. Um, and so there is, there's not going to be, there's not going to be any inner, inner sort of norm constraining what the Trump, what Trump wants and what people who work for him will do. Um, and if that means militarization, if that means scapegoating, if that means fake news narratives, if that means asking Russia to assist with those fake news narratives, sure, I have no, I have no doubt that, um, that this is what, this is what they will try. Um, as I said earlier, I'm relatively modestly confident that it won't work in November, um, but, but only modestly. Um, I, I, we only have a few minutes. I, I'd like to just go around to everybody fairly quickly, but looking at my Zoom dashboard here, there's a, there's, it, you know, there's a little chat thing, and then I see that Jeremy said, can I jump in this point after Ed? Did you just say that now, Jeremy, or was that prior? Yeah. So I, I did. jump in quickly, and then I'll go around to everybody. So, so very quickly, and just to build on some of what Ed was saying, I mean, I think, you know, Ed, Ed talked about a Reichstag moment. I, I actually have, al- I've always seen um, Trump as more of a Milosevic type of character. You know, Milosevic was, he was an opportunist, not an ideologue, who saw the opportunity to seize power through division and use violence, you know, when that suited him. And, and I think, you know, I see Trump very much in that light. I think he, you know, he has realized, you know, he, he has intuited this or kind of, um, internalize this idea that he gains power when people are divided. Um, and he has no real guardrails on that. He has long admired things like what the Chinese did at Tiananmen Square. I mean, back to uh, interviews he did in the 90s talking about that. And that really, between now and November, I think is, is the nightmare scenario that he just, he continues doubling down. Um, he pushes the envelope on the use of violence uh, to foment that division as, as he's, you know, you're seeing in his rhetoric with the governors today. and um, you know, I think that he's he let this, you know, we're not so much potentially Germany in the thirties as we are Yugoslavia in the late eighties. Um, and, uh, and it's a very, you know, it's a real, that's the, that's how, that's the analogy that I'm worried about. Uh, it's an interesting analogy and it's very tempting to want to play the game. What horrible leader from history is Trump most like, um, and, <laughs> And, and don't feel, don't hesitate to to bring that up. But in each one of you, for about, if if we could pick up on what Ed was talking about, I'd like to go around and say to do something very tricky, and and that is to project yourself to the end of the summer, mm. and to say, what's the meta narrative of the summer gonna be for the majority of the American people when we get there? Um, so, Juliet. I already made a prediction. I I think I'm definitely going to be wrong if I make two. Um, So, you know, look, there's going to be so many variables about how we open up and and how long these riots last. Uh, But the number that you can't get away from is the number of people dead. Even if you think Florida and Georgia are doing something funky with the numbers, that number will keep going up and it will go up a lot. I mean, each, I mean, Jeremy and I've never talked about this, but I think each of us in the field has a number in our head um, that um, is realistic and it's bad. And I just think that number that consistent number, um, uh, especially in comparison to other countries, is going to be the narrative of this president. Even while I totally agree, as Ed said, that he is going to try to use race and immigration and all that stuff. Look, there's a when you think about the election, there are sixty thousand. You know, you got to keep up the base. You got to get people excited. You know, maybe Biden picks an African American woman. 
Um, but if you do state by state, there's 60,000 white suburban mothers in three swing states who we need, who Democrats need to get. And they are pissed. They are the, they're not the soccer moms. They're not the security moms. They are the social distancing moms. And if you can keep them pissed, uh, then I'm not too worried about November. Interesting. And just, just to confirm here, the number in your head was 150 to 160. No, 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 it's bigger. By the end of the summer? By the end of the year. I, I think it's, I think, I think we will, I, you know, I, th I think 300,000 is where my head is now. Okay. Uh, same, same question, Jeremy, and then we'll keep going around. And Juliet, I know you have to step off, so you Bye, can step everyone. off. Thank we'll see you, you again soon. Bye. See you again soon. Bye-bye. So yeah, I think that the I think that the trajectory of the pandemic is going to continue to be a story. Uh, you know, Trump and and a lot of his allies, uh, amongst the governors, have been promoting this as basically something that is now in our past, and and we're getting past it. I don't think that's going to prove to be the case. Um, it's going to be more obvious that they were wrong in that analysis by the end of the summer. Um, it would not surprise me at all if we have uh, you know if by the election we have doubled the death toll that we're at now. Um, a lot of that depends on the choices we make between now and then, but the trajectory we're on, I could see it easily happening. And I do think that that will continue to be the main story. Okay. Rosa, before we hop off, do you have a meta narrative you think is going to be the, 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 mo the big takeaway of the summer for most people? Uh, I think I said in previous episodes that I sometimes think we're all living through some kind of horrific real life, you know, utilitarian college moral philosophy 101 experiment, you know, where you sort of say, well, uh, do you push, you know, how many people do you push in front of the trolley car uh, to save how many other people? And, and, and surely there are going to be more deaths. And depending on whose deaths they are, uh, I think that they're going to have a different political valence. And, and one of the, you know, the big moral tests for America, which I'm not particularly sure that we're likely to pass is, you know, if, if, if it's, if it's grandma and grandpa of upper middle class white people in suburban and rural areas, we're going to have a different kind of screaming about, oh my God, do something. Uh, then if it continues to be primarily uh, low income minorities, and we're, we're going to see whether we're both going to see the, the path of the pandemic, which I think is, is not entirely predictable in terms of demographics and so forth. Lots could change, but I think, I think depending on how that shakes out, we're going to discover whether the most paranoid and cynical fears of people of color are, are accurate or not, and they probably are accurate, which is that uh, their, their white American fellow citizens are just not as interested in death and suffering in communities of color. Uh, yeah, well, there seems to be some evidence of that. And in fact, that seems to be sort of the GOP party line, which is this is not our disease. And so it doesn't, you know, it doesn't affect us. And so unless that changes in a dramatic way, as Jeremy indicates, it might, that would, that would be an effect. Okay, and I'm going to give you the last word here. Uh, and that, you know, picks up on your question. At the end of the summer, what is the winning meta narrative going to be? I will put in parentheses the fact that Juliet and Jeremy and Rosa all talked about it in the context of the pandemic. I am struck in the past few days by how quickly the pandemic left everybody's mind. And I wonder if it's not actually going to be the consequences of the economic pressure that 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 million Americans are going to be feeling. But Go ahead, Ed. I think that's absolutely, I think you put your finger on it, um, David, because what uh, the racial polarization does is it makes all other politics 10 times more difficult. And, you know, we, we, we are looking at the necessity of another economic relief pa package to extend um, enhanced unemployment, to help the states, um, to help the hospitals, to fund um, a much more comprehensive testing and contact tracing. The prospects of there being um, some kind of agreement between McConnell and Pelosi, blessed by and enabled by Trump and, and Mnuchin as his lieutenant, has just got considerably worse in the last week. And it wasn't particularly good um, a week ago. So I think you put your finger on it exactly. The economics of this are going to just build up and, um, and, and get progressively worse. And we should mention one other thing, you know, not to forget the rest of the world. The China situation isn't exactly looking rosy. 
Yeah, there's no question about that. And there are a lot of international issues that could could develop along the way. But I think deepening polarization in a country that is a tinderbox from coast to coast um, uh, suggests that whatever the meta narrative is, it's not going to be pretty. I just, again, noticed, uh, you know, an hour ago that Ed Markey, a liberal senator from Massachusetts, said Donald Trump is scum for fueling racist hate and violence in our country. You know, that is not how political discourse normally sounds across the spectrum in the United States. And I think one of the things that we may be seeing here is that a frightened Donald Trump will do everything he can to divide and polarize, and that the GOP has based its political appeal on this division and polarization. And the economic factors, the public health factors, now racial factors, again, are all going to um, make that much worse as we go across the summer. And that's why I share Ed's view that the, a long, hot summer uh, is likely, however it may manifest itself. Uh, we've come to the end of our time. I am so grateful to have such thoughtful people here. Um, uh, I, I, I do want to say that it's important for us to get a much broader set of perspectives, particularly in matters like these. Uh, and I think over the course of the next couple of weeks, we're going to put together several special episodes looking at race issues and urban issues in the United States with people who are uh, active in from those communities. Uh, uh, and I think, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's vital um, for us to broaden our perspectives on how these things affect everybody. An example being the pandemic, which has such a large uh, racial component to it. Um, but in every area. And so I think we really want to make a, a push to do that. And, and, and I think you'll see that reflected in the way we do programming in the course of the next uh, several weeks and months and, and an on an ongoing basis as well. In the meantime, I'd like to thank you very much, Jeremy. I'd like to thank you, Juliet. I'd like to thank you, Rosa. I would like to thank you, Ed. Um, uh, please join us again later in the week for further episodes. Join us again later in the month. And if you want to see what else we're doing and what's planned, go to the dsrnetwork.com. And while you're there, I don't know, click on the button that says membership. Go purchase a membership. Help support what we're doing here. Uh, in times like these, we want to expand what we're doing very much, as I just indicated. Uh, but we need support to do that. And so if you can help us, we appreciate it. Uh, so thank you, everybody, and, and stay healthy.